Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We, That's are, right. we are the Classic Gaming we Brothers. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. The classiest of gaming brothers. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy, for coming on and instructing us on all things Assassin's Creed. It was it was very knowledgeable. I had not known a lot about Assassin's Creed, and now I do know a lot about Assassin's Creed. So we appreciate your wealth of knowledge, and you are welcome back when we talk about Far Cry or any other time. Uh, so, Seth, what have you been recently playing? So recently I've been playing that hit classic, Star Wars, Shadows of the Empire. Oh, I love that game. It's a great game. Came out in 1996 for the N64 and was developed by LucasArts. You play in Star Wars Shadows of the Empire, one of the best characters in the expanded universe. I could almost say the best character in the expanded universe. And that's Dash Rendar, who has a ship called the Outrider, which is what I named my first car. No, my second car. My second car was the Outrider. My first car was the Millennium Falcon because it was a being held together by rope and was kind of a piece of crap. My second car was also a piece of crap, but wasn't held together by rope. Thus, it became the Outrider. My third car was Slave One because it was actually... It actually performed. Well, I bought it from a dealer instead of two unreputable sources. Well, uh, Shadows of the Empire, I think, is a great game. It's actually a really I, interesting game. It is a, a very interesting game. So for those who have not played Shadows of the Empire, it starts off kind of like a cold open open almost where it just drops you in a snow speeder and you have to defend the base from the empire which is a thing that happens in the movies and you have to fly your snow speeder around first you have to shoot probe droids then you have to shoot atsts and probe droids then you have to shoot atsts probe droids and ATATs. then you have to shoot multiple iterations of all of them and then you return to base and it's actually a pretty tough level where you also have a set amount of lives that you carry through the rest of the game so you do gain some lives back but you don't always gain all of the lives back so if you really stink at flying but you're really good at the like the action part of the games you could lose a bunch of your lives right in the beginning of the game i also thought it was kind of humorous that a you can't shoot your allies they actually yell at you if you do yeah they get grumpy they get grumpy and then you're the only one that's killing everything yeah the allies don't really do anything no they did shoot i saw one of them shoot one probe droid so i don't know if they do that on purpose or by accident because i think their blaster fire probably does damage because i don't think the game like renders separate blaster fire that's separate from yours but i don't know if they actually are smart enough ai to aim so I no, think they're, they're just, just spamming yeah yeah i think they just fire randomly right and sometimes the enemies randomly go into their blast yeah i did have some amazing death sequences i had the old uh toe cable into an atst so oh, i was classic. toe cabling around an atat and drove into an atst uh i had the old smash into an atat's cockpit destroying it and bringing it down moment and i also did that to the atst i'm very bad at piloting a, a snowspeeder and shouldn't be in charge uh then you play as 
Dash Rendar inside the Hoth base where you have to escape. You're like walking and there's the Millennium Falcon and you're like, great. And then it just gets up and leaves. Yep. I love that part. Without you on it. And then you have to go through the uh, the Hoth base and you have to shoot snow troopers, yeah. uh, E-Web blasters that are unmanned by anybody, just like a, a blaster turret, probe droids, and wampas. The wampas you can free and have them kill other people or have you can actually watch wampas duke it out with each other, which is always a joy. Yeah, but so that, yeah, so I've been playing uh, Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. In that game, you'll eventually fight IG-88. IG yeah, you fight yeah, yeah. IG-88. I think that's it's before he becomes part of the Death Star. <laughs> yeah, because that happens in the canon. Yes. And then, uh, yeah. Do you fight Darth Vader? No, you don't no, fight you Darth fight Vader. Boba Fett. You fight, you fight Boba, Boba Fett. Fett. Yeah, and you fight you Boba Fett. Encounter Prince Zizer. Oh yes, you you the who's the green uh, leader of the Black Sun. I do like that. Not to go too into much of into a tangent on Shadows of the Empire, but it was supposed to be a multimedia experience. So not only was there the game, there was also a book, which is part yep. of the Shadows of the Empire series. I think the book actually takes place before. It's like takes place partially before the game and a little after the game. And then there was also tie-in comics. Yep. And there was a toy line and there was supposed to be a movie. Yeah. Shadows of the Empire came out right around that time where it was 96. So it was mm -hmm. before episode one and it was right around the remastering of the special edition. I think the special edition came out 97. So it was before the special edition. So there was no Star Wars things like in the, in the zeitgeist. There was just no there was just nothing so they were kind of just spitballing ideas and trying to expand on the star wars universe without doing another star wars movie because george lucas at the time wasn't having it he would eventually have it when he needed some additional capital and thus episode one came around but if you noticed no dash rendar <laughs> right yeah no history of dash rendar no nothing but that's fun. I like Shadows of the Empire. Shadows of the Empire is a great game. I streamed it a few like a few years ago on our Twitch. Yes, and uh, I have cufflinks with it on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was I was I was married with Shadows of the Empire cufflinks, and that's a fun fact that you didn't know about me. Oh yeah, I knew it. I wasn't talking to you. I'm talking to the space between you and me. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> between. <laughs> So, Zach, uh, what have you been playing? Uh, Seth, recently I've been playing the game Attack of the Pet Ski Robots, uh, specifically the Sega Genesis version, which came out in 2022 and was created by the 8-Bit Guy, or um, David Murray, who is a YouTuber who we've mentioned a few times on the show. He he talks a lot about retro computers, and specifically he's very into the Commodore and the Commodore VIC-20, but he also talks about uh, Amigas and Macs and stuff, and he did a does a series where he retro brights old equipment to make them look better if the plastic has yellowed. He is also a programmer and he has released a few games. Uh, one is called Planet X3, which I talked about in a prior episode. That's uh, a game on MS DOS. And this game, Attack of the Pet Ski Robots, is his like multi console game that has he's been working on for some time. The original game came out for the Commodore Pet and it uses Pet Ski graphics, hence the name. However, uh, he he decided he was going to port the game to various other consoles and then other people decided they were going to port the 
game to various other consoles with his permission. And it's since been ported to the uh, VIC-20, the Commodore 64, the Commodore Plus 4, which is like an obscure computer. It's also been ported to the NES, the Sega Genesis, the Amiga, DOS, Apple II, ZX Spectrum. It's just like versions of it keep coming out. <laughs> it just keeps coming. Uh, the, so I, I've been playing the most recent version, which is the Sega Genesis version, and it's uh, pretty darn good. Uh, it is a adventure puzzle game. So you play as a guy who enters a military base and you have to stop robots. And the, the way you do so is you often have to find ways to either trap them or kind of uh, get them so that they don't notice you before you destroy them. And this can involve planting bombs or finding guns or sorted weaponry to fight them. And it can be a pretty difficult game. There's like one robot in particular that is one of the first robots you encounter. And he won't bother you if you ignore him. But the moment you shoot him, he charges at you and will take a lot of damage as he just kind of keeps charging at you. If you're not used to the game, even the first, literally first robot can be a bit of a surprise. But once you get used to it, those first few robots are easy to take care of. And then you start encountering some harder ones like ones that actually will shoot you so it's a it's a pretty good game i i liked playing it i also bought a copy for the apple II, which i put onto a disc and i haven't really played that too much yet but i do uh have it on like a floppy disc that i can just pop into my apple II and play uh so i don't have to necessarily play it in an emulator that's fun but he's done with the, the genesis right or yeah, so the Genesis version is completed. Which is why it's available on cartridge. So yes, I don't own the cartridge version. I have a digital copy. Oh, okay. So that if there is any updates, you could get a reissue? Yep, I could. And uh, I don't know if I, you couldn't if you had the physical copy. But um, he, he said it's pretty much 100% done. And it has all the most recent features that he's considered adding to the game, such as uh, maps and stuff like that. Um, so I opted to buy the digital copy because for one reason, I have a, a flash cart so I can just pop any game on there that I want. But also, the physical copy, while finished, hasn't yet shipped. It's still in pre-order stage. And I, I kind of wanted to just like get a chance to play the game. So I bought the digital because it was an instant download. I guess I could have bought the physical because it comes with the digital. But I think I opted for the digital because I got also the Apple II version. And I was like, I didn't want to spend like tons of money. <laughs> no, no offense to David. He's a great guy. And, you know, it's it's good to support him. But Zach only has so much money to spend. And you get your Apple II one working? Yeah, so the Apple II one works. I um, had to finagle some st settings on my Apple because I haven't touched it in a while. So I had to play around with some switches that I forgot I had to play around with. But I eventually got it to boot disks uh, properly. And I was able to uh, copy a disk over to a blank floppy. And I wrote Attack of the Petsky Robots on it. So I know which one it is. And when I pop it in, it works. Nice. Is it dramatically different from the Genesis version? The graphics are simpler on the Apple II version. Uh, the Apple II is not obviously capable of doing the same type it's of like graphical stuff, yeah, yeah the graphical fidelity of a of a of genesis game also the way an apple II handles colors is different than how a genesis handle colors so apple II actually generates colors by using artifacting of uh, the ntsc signal so it uh, essentially fakes color and the genesis is obviously able to produce color so it's sprite based so that's that would be a major difference um also the apple II does not have a native sound card so the music comes from the internal speaker which is very bloopy instead of the genesis which has a uh, sound driver and i think the genesis has the best sound the genesis in general has a really good sound uh sound chip so the out of the versions available the genesis version i've heard is considered the best one it's also on the nintendo so there is a version 
coming out for the NES. It hasn't been released yet. Um, it's still in early development. And I heard that there's a Super Nintendo version in development. It's one of those games I think it's going to be on everything at, at some point. It's like... The Switch. Yeah, uh, yeah probably. It's, it's just going to keep going until there's no systems left. Uh, so today's episode, we're going to be uh, talking about not Shadows of the Empire nor Petsy Robots. We're going to be talking about a company that is called... Tengen and Zach chose this episode topic without my permission. Okay, for some transparency, uh, we were going to do a different episode. And Seth said, I don't want to do this episode. You pick the topic. So I went into my brain and I said, what's a topic that I have some some knowledge of and also that we can do an episode on? And I thought Tengen is pretty cool. They're connected to people we've talked about before. Um, so it made logical sense. So I, I have zero memories of Tengen. I feel like once we start talking about the games, you might have some memories of Tengen. They did some porting of a game that I may have played, I think at least one, Gauntlet maybe. Yep, you probably have played Gauntlet. Did you ever play Primal Rage? Maybe. They technically were involved in that. In terms of my memories of Tengen, I really only learned about them when I started getting into game collecting. Um, so I would come across these NES cartridges that were different shaped and also black instead of gray. Most of them that I saw were often uh, fairly inexpensive. Uh, these were titles like Pac-Man and Skull and Crossbones, which is like a pirate themed game. And uh, I was like, oh, these are kind of weird. And then I started learning about unlicensed games and such and Tengen is one of those names that has popped up every now and then and I was kind of always curious I was like oh this kind of a weird company got around Nintendo's uh you know licensing to make these games and it turns out Tengen is a bit more than just a little weird company that got around licensing because Tengen got its start in 1984 after the video game crash Atari at that time had splintered into two companies Atari Corporation and Atari Games Atari Corporation was responsible for all the computers, console games, and hardware. They also owned the rights to the Atari brand. Atari Games, however, was formed from the arcade division. They were able to use Atari's brand for arcade releases, but they were not able to use it for the home market. This became a major issue because in the mid-80s, after the video game crash, the home market was on a sudden rebound when a little company called Nintendo came over to America. And with this reviving home market, they wanted to get back into the home market. So they needed a way to do this and still be able to uh, properly publish their games. So they created a subsidiary called Tengen, which came from the Japanese game Go, which is also where the word Atari comes from. So as we talked about in our Atari episode, the name Atari is a term used in Go. Um, so they decided to go back to their to their founding roots to find the name that they needed. It's very on brand for Atari there. Yeah, it is. It is. It's kind of fun that like they were like, ah, we got to pick a new name. Let's just go back to that game that we played. <laughs> now, during the 1980s, Nintendo was incredibly strict about their licensing for systems, which they really are just always strict when it comes to licensing. Yeah. Nintendo is a, a pretty like cut and dry company and and you either get Nintendo's permission or you don't do it. Now, they learned this because of the fact of, from their mistakes that prior companies had made, which ultimately led to the video game crash. We've talked about the video game crash before and the influx of everybody ever making a video game console and people making games for everything, including people who have no rights to make video game consoles like Magnavox. Yeah, and people had no rights to make video games like Purina, the dog food company. Right. So when companies like Purina are out there making video games, you're going to have a crash. 
And that's where Nintendo was like, you know what? There was we're we're gonna be very strict about our licensing because we want to make sure if we have a third party do something for us, they're not Purina, the dog food company. So Nintendo's deal was that a third party company could only make five games a year. Nintendo would handle the manufacturing in-house, and the games would have to be a Nintendo exclusive for two years. Other companies found ways to circumvent this, such as Konami, who created the subsidiary Ultra to get past the five games a year rule, which is why there are lots of Konami games on the Nintendo. They may have just been under Ultras, but they're still Konami. Tengen, however, was not as fortunate. They attempted to negotiate a deal with Nintendo to form a more open licensing agreement, but Nintendo flat out rejected them. Ultimately, in 1987, a great year, Tenjid would agree to Nintendo's licensing terms and begin to work on games. Its first three games, and only three games, that were licensed by Nintendo were RBI Baseball, Pac-Man, and Gauntlet. Now, obviously, they didn't make any of these games originally. They were all ports, <laughs> including RBI Baseball, right? Well, it was originally a Namco game that was brought over as a Versus system. Atari was in charge of the Versus system. Yeah, because it was still a cabinet. So they, they did all the porting to the Nintendo Entertainment System for these arcade games. Well, they, these were all games that Atari had the license to port. So they, they were involved in the distribution of the cabinet. They would have the distribution rights for the home console. Yeah, so the Atari's like, yeah, do you want Gauntlet? We could put Gauntlet on Nintendo. Here's the deal, though. They had an idea up their little brain in regards to what they were actually doing with Nintendo. And that was trying to figure out how to break their chip. They were going to go and develop these port for the games that they had licenses for because this would give them the opportunity to work on Nintendo hardware. Give them the opportunity to learn how to break the lockout chip because if they broke the lockout chip they could make their own Nintendo games. So, for those who don't know, Nintendo actually had a way of combating unlicensed developers from making games. And this was a chip called the 10NES. The 10NES was a type of chip called a CIC or checking integrated circuit. The way the chip worked was it acted as a key to allow the console to recognize the game as legitimate and also in the same region as the console. So if you plug a PAL game into an NTSC system, the 10NES in the cartridge, the PAL cartridge, will tell the NTSC system this is a PAL game. So Tengen was trying to find a way around this chip. And while they were working on their games that were authorized by Nintendo, they were working on their own chip that they called the Rabbit. Despite the fact that the 10NES was fairly effective at combating most unlicensed games, it actually had already been thwarted by many different unlicensed developers. Uh, I mean, this included things from like developers being as sneaky as salvaging cartridges and taking just the chip out and putting it on their boards. But another way was that some developers found that the lockout chip could be overrode by using a voltage spike triggered by the cartridge. Um, so games like, I think by the company uh, Camerica, which come in these golden cartridges, actually shocked your NES very slightly so that the lockout chip would fry for us for a brief moment to allow the game ROM to be read. Now, Tension could conceivably have done this, but they were really worried that it would damage NES consoles, and they didn't want to potentially be sued for causing damage to someone's system. Unlike Camerica, who just didn't Care. <laughs> yeah, Comerica just was like, whatever. To avoid liability, they opted to find a way to bypass the chip instead. I'm also wondering if Tension did this to potentially have a bartering 
chip for other unlicensed developers. That's a theory of mine. I have no evidence to suggest this, but in, in my thinking in my head... They could be the unlicensed licensor. Yes, if you could develop code that could bypass the chip and you just gave that code out to people that you wanted <laughs> to. You sold, sold that code. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, again, that's my theory. Now, besides just potentially causing liability issues and burning out a bunch of people's Nintendo systems, they were also concerned by the fact that Nintendo frequently made small modifications to the NES. Every time an NES system was, like, reissued, Nintendo actually would go in and make slight hardware tweaks. And something they would do is make it so that the voltage spike method of breaking the lockout chip was harder and harder to do using unlicensed cartridges. Which is kind of funny to think that because this is prior to downloading firmware updates and software updates on your consoles today. Everybody now is just used to you turn your console on, the console has an update, the game has an update, all these ga- all this stuff has updates because everyone's going in to maintain these softwares and this hardware through the firmware. The way that Nintendo would update it to protect it and to solve for any liabilities in the hardware would be be to modify future hardware. So Tension's ultimate uh, plan with the rabbit chip was to reverse engineer the 10NES. To do so, they had to decipher the code that was hidden within the chip. And this actually proved to be a lot harder of a task than they had anticipated. It was so daunting, in fact, that Tension never ultimately finished the rabbit chip. Time was ticking by, and they decided to turn where all American companies turn in their time of need, the United States Copyright Office. Tension lawyers contacted the office, and they requested a copy of the lockup the lockout chip program and the United States Copyright Office sent it over. Tengen had told the U.S. Copyright Office that they required the code for uh, potential litigation against Nintendo because they were requesting it to be able to build a case against Nintendo, which they weren't. They were just requesting it so that they could circumvent it. But it's ironic that they said that potential litigation was the reason they requested it because it would be what Nintendo would do and they would sue Tengen in instead. So then they got the code and with the code they were able to figure out the lockout chip because they had the code and so they started to release their cartridges with the circumventing of the lockout chips. Yeah. And in 1988, Nintendo then sued them. The lawsuit would eventually end up lasting until 1994, which is a pretty decent battle in litigation. And Nintendo would ultimately be declared the winner. Uh, The court would ultimately rule that Atari Games engaged in copyright infringement by copying Nintendo's lockout system. During the lawsuit, however, Tension did release plenty of titles for the NES, including a version of Tetris called Tetris, the Soviet Mind Game. Now, this is because until the lawsuit is settled, there's nothing that Nintendo could really do to stop them. Right. And I want to remind everyone, Tension was not a small company. Tension was Atari. Even though Atari was kind of fractured in the 80s, they still had money. Like, (laughs) like they still had capital. And they were also owned by Warner, like Warner Communications. So they could fight a lawsuit and still release games. No problem. 
in fact, it was very much almost like a West versus East kind of throwdown. You had Warner fighting Nintendo. And at the time, Nintendo wasn't the powerhouse that it is today. Warner would be the bigger dog in this fight. So now Tetris, the Soviet mind game, seems like a that's like a no brainer, right? That's probably going to be a hit. Unfortunately for Tenjin, it got them into even more trouble. You see, to talk a little bit about Tetris, it was actually a hot commodity when people learned about it. You see, the game was developed originally by a uh, Russian video game developer named Alexei Plajitnov for a Soviet computer called the Electronica 60. Plajitnov, in 1987, worked alongside two other developers to create a new version of Tetris. Uh, He was actually hoping to build a multiplayer version of the game. An executive named Robert Stein from a company called Andromeda Software came to Plajitnov with an offer to distribute the game worldwide. He secured the rights from Plajitnov, and he sub-licensed these rights to a company called Mirrorsoft in Europe, Spectrum Holobyte in North America. Ed Logg, a programmer who worked for Atari Games, saw a version of Tetris running on an Atari ST computer and suggested that Atari license it for their arcade system. So Atari went and did that and they got permission from Robert Stein to begin developing ports of Tetris to the NES under the Tengen name. And that port released in May of 1989. This is all good news for Tengen, right? We're getting NES releases of Tetris. Well, around the same time, Mirosoft, a sub-licensee of Tetris, was approached by Hank Rogers to distribute the game in Japan. Rogers worked for a company called Bulletproof Software and was in talks with Nintendo to secure the rights for Tetris for the Game Boy. Rogers flew to Moscow and met with the USSR's Ministry of Software and Hardware Export and was able to secure the rights through the ministry. Now, according to the Soviet government, Pajanov did not own the rights to Tetris because he could not own the rights to Tetris because the actual rights to Tetris belonged to the state of USSR. With permission secured from them, Nintendo released Tetris. So, in April 1989, Tenjin sued Nintendo while they were being sued by Nintendo, and they claimed they had the rights to Tetris. Nintendo countersued, claiming that Tengen infringed on their copyright, and finally, in June of 1989, one month after the Tengen version of Tetris was officially released, a U.S. District Court judge issued an injunction barring Tengen from distributing the game. He also ordered all copies to be destroyed because the U.S. District Court judge ruled in the favor of Nintendo, and that, in fact, that the USSR owned the rights to the game, not Alexei Pajanov. This ended up resulting in 268,000 copies of Tetris, a Soviet mind game, being recalled and destroyed after being on the shelves for only four weeks. It's estimated that only 100,000 copies were sold in total, though some estimates are even lower with 50,000. Currently, a loose copy of the game could be bought today in 2022 for around $110 and a complete in-box copy for around $219, which is kind of cool. If you own that, you could own a a very rare copy of Tetris, a Soviet mind game. What is unfortunate about the Tengen version of Tetris is it's, uh, in my opinion, a lot better than the NES version of Tetris licensed by Nintendo. So the Nintendo version of Tetris is kind of slow, only in single player, and doesn't have any uh, speeding up, really. It has speeding up, but it's it's not logarithmic, so it's not, it's based more on level, not on skill. So the Tengen version of Tetris has kind of a 
smarter way of doing the speed up. It's, it's based in part on skill, not just on level, and also was two players simultaneous multiplayer, which is really cool and yeah. has some great music, which is going to be the music that I use to introduce this episode. The tension version of Tetris also rates as being one of the top 100 games of all time by IGN and also has been praised multiple times by current reviewers of the day. After the court case, uh, tension would later produce games for other systems, uh, primarily from companies that wouldn't sue them. Uh, this being uh, Sega and their Genesis, the Sega Master System, the Sega Game Gear, and the TurboGrafx-16. Mostly because Sega doesn't really care what you do with their system. Yeah, Sega didn't have any lockout chips, and to be honest, they had enough to deal with anyway. In 1994, as we had mentioned, the lawsuit was settled. Uh, Time Warner reacquired a controlling stake of Atari Games, and Tengen was consolidated into Time Warner Interactive. Time Warner Interactive would go defunct two years later in 1996. Tengen has widely been remembered as being a game company that, while marred in controversy, created a f some fairly good games for the NES. Games like Clax, Ms. Pac-Man, Pac-Mania, and Rolling Thunder were all released on the NES under the Tengen name. They also developed, released the NES version of Fantasy Zone, Shinobi, and Afterburner, which were Sega-developed titles on the NES. Yeah, so you can play a Sega game on the NES, which is wild if you think about it. That is pretty wild. And during their brief time as Time Warner Interactive, they released games like Batman Returns, The Lawnmower Man, those both for the Sega CD and Lawnmower Man was on the Genesis as well, and RBI Baseball 94 and 95, and the home console port for Primal Rage, which I actually remember playing, and you play as dinosaurs fighting each other, and it's a great game. We should do an episode just on Primal Rage. Oh yeah, Primal Rage is a great game, and the uh, Time Warner Interactive version is the one that, it's on everything. If you play Primal Rage, it is licensed by time warner interactive who were the remains of tension <laughs> and uh that's going to do it for our tension part of this episode so one of the reasons i think tension is really interesting is because it's almost opposite of what happened with atari back in the early days when activision was founded for our listeners who might not remember seth and i've mentioned this i think a few times now activision was founded by disgruntled atari uh, employees who created this company to make third-party games for the atari and atari sued activision for infringement on their copyright however activision won and that's one of the reasons why third-party developers became a thing in general was because activision won this lawsuit that basically said, yeah, you can make video games for consoles that you're not licensed by. Um, you just can't, you know, steal their IP. And in many ways, the Activision lawsuit allowed Tengen to technically get away with this besides the fact that they stole the CIC code. So if Tengen didn't steal the CIC code, if they had properly reversed engineered it, then they could have potentially released cartridges without being sued. Or if they just played Nintendo's game and did five games a year and had Nintendo manufacture them. Like if they just developed games for the Nintendo and then sent it over to Nintendo and have Nintendo do it, they got greedy and yeah, tried yeah, to do yeah. it themselves. And that's what screwed them. But I mean... There are also plenty of other unlicensed developers that Seth and I could probably talk about. Um, anything from uh, Comerica, uh, who did some really 
beautiful games uh, in those golden cartridges that faulted out your system. Or Sachin, which uh, we could always talk about at some point. Or Color Dreams and Wisdom Tree, which made Bible games. Anyway, uh, we're going to get into the Byway Pass segment. Seth, as you did your recently played first, I'm going to do your Byway Pass. So, Seth, this game is coming out in 2023. It is just recently announced... So you might have seen the trailer, you might have not. In this game, you're going to play as someone who is a survivor. They are someone who uh, has experienced strife in life against an oppressive reality that they live in. And they have not only learned since their last time in this world, but they are going to have to pick up the pieces of their last adventure to continue to survive in a, in a, in a in a galaxy that is uh, against them. Are you curious about this game? Sure. What is it? Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Ooh. We're going to take a short break while I look it up. So we're back. So Star Wars Jedi Survivor is a game that's coming out in 2023 and it looks like it's going to be a sequel of Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, hence the title being the same and the subtitle being different. I watched the trailer and it looks interesting. I'm going to probably put it down as a wait because I have not beaten Fallen Order yet. And I don't know if I'll have it beaten by the time that this game comes out. That's fair. And so if I beat Fallen Order when Survivor comes out, then I will go and buy Survivor. But no guarantees. I don't I don't think I'm going to have it beaten by then. So I'll probably wait until it's on sale and just get it then. Yeah. Well, my game is very different for you. Ooh, do tell. It is uh, an old school top-down arcade game that is brought over to the PC. It puts you into the role of a critical service person who has to make sure they carry out their job correctly. It just came out June 9th, 2022, developed by Fedor Ico. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. It's Mailman. All right, we're going to take a brief uh, pause as I look up Mailman and uh, determine whether or not I am going to buy, wait, or pass on this game. And we're back. So Mailman is, as Seth described, a game being developed by Fedor Ico, and uh, it's a 2D old school top-down arcade game. It looks pretty straightforward, pretty basic. Uh, you play as a mailman. There are dogs. Uh, you have to drop mail into mailboxes. It looks fun. So I like these older style games. Uh, it looks pretty unique. Um, looks pretty simple, pretty fun. However, I think I'm going to put it down as a weight. I like like classic arcade games. I like stuff like this. However, I, I don't like actively seek them out and buy them when they're on Steam. I either play older games physically or I'll, I'll play indie style older games if i get them in like a bundle i I might put this game down as a wait just to kind of keep an eye on it um who knows maybe when it releases in a day and is already out by this episode i will have changed my mind but uh, at this time i'm just going to put it down as a wait anyway uh zach do you want to take us out if you liked this episode and you wanted to let us know, you can email classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our various social media channels. 
We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, and Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are Classic Gaming Brothers. Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. Be sure to like, review us, and do all those things that you would do on all the various podcasting applications. Leave us a review. Uh, give us five stars. Give us ten stars. I don't know. Whatever the maximum amount of stars is, give those the stars. And uh, that will do it, I think. I don't think there's anything else I need to add. Unless Seth has something to add. Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic gaming brothers that's right